Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 261. It's titled, Is Value Investing Dead? Value investing, the idea of buying stocks that sell below their intrinsic value, stocks that are cheap. Now, all managers, all money managers, seek to buy stocks that are cheaper than their intrinsic value. And by intrinsic value, what should their prices be based on the future value of their cash flow, their profits that are paid out to shareholders in terms of dividends. Dividends are brought into the present using a discount rate. It's known as the present value calculation. That discount rate, different money managers will use different discount rates, but that discount rate reflects the rate of return that investors expect on a particular stock. Now, nobody knows what the true intrinsic value of a stock is, but a growth manager that buys companies with very fast earnings growth, they still are trying to buy a stock that they believe is undervalued relative to the growth prospects. We'll look in today's episode how the index providers on which ETFs and index funds are based on how they determine value versus growth. But traditionally, when we're talking about value investing, we're talking about managers, and index funds that overweight certain sectors of the market that are cheap or cheaper than other sectors. So growth typically has a overweight in technology stocks. Value typically has an overweight in financials and utilities. And we'll we'll look at why that is. But what is amazing is when we look at these traditional growth indices versus value indices, value has underperformed for 12 and a half years. That is the longest stretch that I have experienced myself. I experienced another stretch of value significantly underperforming back in the late 90s, shortly after I became a institutional investment advisor. In 1999, the NASDAQ had a large representation of internet-related technology stocks. That index gained 86% in 1999. One out of six NASDAQ stocks appreciated over 100% that year, while 44 gained over 1,000%. By the end of 1999, the top 100 names in the NASDAQ were selling for an astounding 136 times trailing 12-month earnings. Five years earlier, in 1994, those same stocks were selling at a valuation of 23 times trailing 12-month earnings. So the price-to-earnings ratio was significantly higher 
1999. At the time, as an institutional money manager, we were typically a typical manager would have value managers in their portfolio. They would have growth managers in their portfolio, generally active. Maybe they had a a small allocation to the S&P 500 index, but it was still primarily active management. And the value managers were getting trounced by the growth managers. And clients were unwilling to rebalance back to their value managers. I went to the library at the university where I had attended college as an undergrad and just started researching value versus growth, any academic articles I could find. And I wrote a white paper that we sent out to clients about the risk of overweighting growth stocks. I wrote, certainly the rise of internet and other new economy technological advances has had a profound impact on capital markets and on our daily lives. Without a doubt, growth stocks deserve a higher valuation than old economy value stocks since their earnings grow at a faster rate. Nevertheless, fiduciaries that overweight growth stocks in their portfolios must understand that their wager is not whether technology-related growth stocks will change the world as we know it. The answer to that question is a definite yes. Fiduciaries who overweight growth stocks are wagering that Wall Street analysts and other market participants are currently underestimating the earnings growth rates of these new economy stocks, whereas historically they have overestimated earnings growth. If investors are willing to make the above bet, then the relevant question is, does the potential benefit of being correct more than offset the penalty of being wrong? In other words, when you buy a growth stock, you're assuming that the growth assumptions in terms of earnings, cash flow, priced into that stock are too low, that the company's going to do better than that. It's going to surprise to the upside. That's why you're a growth investor. If you're a value investor, you think the same thing, that the price is too cheap. But value stocks tend to have a little lower growth rate. So that was 1999-2000. How did those growth stocks do after that? Research Affiliates recently released a white paper titled Bubble, Bubble, Toil, and Trouble. It was written by Rob Arnott, Bradford Cornell, and Shane Shepard. In the paper, they looked at the top 10 tech companies in the year 2000 by market capitalization, in other words, by size, and then looked at what the returns would have been. Now, the idea is that growth stocks tend to underperform value stocks over the long term because investors get too exuberant. They believe the growth companies will have earnings and revenue growth faster than what they actually end up doing. And then investors get disappointed. So they listed out these 10 stocks, Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, IBM are some of the examples. The average performance of those 10 companies from January 2000 through May 2019 was negative 1.1%. That compares, and that's an annualized number, so negative 1.1% annualized. That compares to the S&P 500 index, which returned 5.3% annualized. Growth for that long stretch, at least as represented by those top 10 tech companies, underperformed the index. Benjamin Graham, 
in his classic book, Intelligent Investor, wrote, Today's investors are so concerned with anticipating the future that he is already paying handsomely for it in advance. Investors pay up for growth stocks, sometimes overpay, and that's why over long stretches, value stocks, where investors don't overpay, in fact, get too pessimistic, believe that the growth and earnings prospects will be far worse than what actually happens. Now, in the early 2000s, I and a couple of my partners started an investment service where we managed the assets for our clients. And it was called Opportunistic Value initially, and then later FEG Advisors. We put in a value tilt. It was a great time in the early 2000s to have a value tilt because after the growth stocks peaked in 2000, value went on an incredible stretch of outperformance. For the seven years ending July 31st, 2007, value stocks outperformed growth stocks by 118%. That's 14 percentage points annualized as measured by the Russell 3000 style benchmark. So the Russell 3000 growth index, the Russell 3000 value, growth underperformed value by 14% annualized. That's a complete reversal from what happened in the late 90s. Now, our strategy was to have a value tilt, but it got to the point where value was getting too expensive. One way you could look at that is by the the size of the overall value index, the Russell 1000 growth index versus the Russell 1000 value index. When we look at the market capitalization, which is a stock's market capitalization is its size based on its price times the number of shares outstanding. So if we add up all those market capitalizations or those individual stocks in the year 2000, the total market capitalization for the Russell 1000 growth index. So this is the large cap component of growth and value. The Russell 3000 includes both large, mid, and small companies. So the total market capitalization of the Russell 1000 growth index was $180 billion versus $80 billion for the Russell 1000 value index. By July 2007, the Russell 1000 value index total market capitalization was $110 billion versus only $70 billion for the Russell 1000 Growth Index. Value was bigger and the relative valuations were more expensive. Now, typically growth stocks, because they have higher earnings growth, will sell for a premium, a higher valuation relative to value taxes as represented by, let's say, price to earnings ratio. But the level of the premium was very, very narrow. When we looked at it on a price-to-book basis and a price-to-sales basis, value stocks were selling relative to large-cap growth stocks at their cheapest level since the Russell-style indices were created in 1978. So we added an exposure to the Russell 1000 growth index through an ETF in 2007, reduced our value weight. And then the financial crisis hit and value has underperformed growth ever since. 
12 and a half years. As of June 30th, 2019, the Russell 1000 value index has underperformed the Russell 1000 growth index by a cumulative 136% or 4.3% annualized. 12 and a half years. Since 2017, the middle of 2017, value has trailed by another 21%. Now, this isn't just a phenomena in the U.S. If we look at global stocks as represented by the All-Country World Index, this is the MSCI Index, value has returned 9.4% annualized for the past 10 years through June 30th, 2019, while their growth index has returned 12% annualized. So about 2.6% underperformance annualized for the value index. Russell no longer makes, at least available to non-paying people like me, the total market capitalization, but it, it definitely has reversed. If we look at the weighted average market capitalization of the Russell 1000 growth, it's $311 billion. The median company's $13 billion in terms of its market cap. That compares to the Russell 1000 value, which has a weighted average market capitalization of $130 billion compared to and a median of $9.4 billion. So growth is, again, in terms of the overall size of the market, much bigger than value. Whereas back in 2007, valued in terms of the total market capitalization of value stocks, large cap value stocks in the U.S. was bigger than growth. So now we've had a significant period of underperformance. And these 12 and a half years, that's a long time. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management wrote a white paper that came out in July titled Value is Dead, Long Live Value. It was written by Chris Meredith. They looked at history. Is there another period when value has lagged growth for such a long stretch? And they found 1926 to 1941. You had a significant period of outperformance by growth. And one of the things they pointed out is and you see the same thing in growth and value indices today, they tend to be dominated by a particular sector. For example, the sector allocation for the S&P 500 growth index, as calculated by Book to Price, so they did some calculations, it was 65% manufacturing stocks, automobile manufacturers. I mean, that was a huge component of that growth index. The value index only had 19% in manufacturing. The value index had 74% utilities, if you can believe that, whereas the growth index only had 12%. We're seeing the same phenomena today. The Russell 1000 growth index, so this is U.S. large company stocks, has 38% weight in information technology and 3% in financials. The Russell 1000 value has 24% in financials and 6%. And technology. So when we look at what is driving the outperformance of the growth index over these past 12 and a half years, it's technology stocks. And they've done extremely well. But now they're expensive. And it's a question of when will this trend reverse? We don't know. Before we look at how growth and value indices are constructed, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. 
my first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. To better understand how a growth index can have so much allocated to technology stocks while a value index has so much allocated to financial stocks, we have to see how these indices are constructed. So I took a look, for example, at the Vanguard Value Fund and a Vanguard Growth Fund. These are index funds. I particularly focus on their small cap funds. They use CRISP data, C-R-S-P. Whenever you're looking at an index fund, you always want to understand which index it's following and then go to the index website to see their methodology for how the particular benchmark is constructed. The way that CRISP calculates what goes into the value index versus the growth index is they use what's known as a multi-factor model. So they look at the entire investment universe and then they use factors for values such as book to price ratio, future earnings to price ratio, historical earnings to price ratio, dividend to price ratio, and sales to price ratio. The growth factors it uses are future long-term growth and earnings per share, future short-term growth in earnings per share, three-year historical growth in earnings per share, three years in historical growth and sales per share, current investment to asset ratio, and return on assets. So these 11 characteristics, they essentially look at 
all the stocks in the universe and then separate them out by growth versus value based on these characteristics. So the cheapest stocks based on that criteria become value stocks. The more expensive are growth stocks. Those companies with the higher growth rates become growth stocks. And the ones with the lower growth rates becomes value stocks. So each stock gets its own basically score, a Z factor to whether it should be growth or value. And then it is capitalization weighted. So it's weighted by size, even though you have the growth index and the value index. Now, the reason why most indices and the index funds and ETFs that track them are capitalization weighted is because it's highly efficient for the fund sponsors. The weight is based on size. And so as the market fluctuates, the particular holding, its weight within the index, it adjusts. But if you're actually running a live portfolio, it adjusts automatically. So there's very close tracking because it's based on size. But capitalization isn't the only way to create an index. There's something called fundamental indexing, where instead of basing the weight in the index on size, they can use accounting metrics or other metrics such as revenue, earnings, dividend yields. And these fundamental indexes are examples of what's known as smart beta or factor investing, where it's looking at specific factors. These could be, again, let's say dividend yields a factor and then constructing a benchmark or index based on that. The only reason you would do that, though, is because you believe markets are inefficient, that the consensus of the market is wrong, and that a capitalization index overweights companies that are overvalued, that are too expensive, and underweights companies that are undervalued. And so if you use a different criteria for constructing your index, you can get rid of that bias. And that's what fundamental index is. It recognizes, because it's using other criteria other than size, that the biggest names in the index can be too expensive. Now, you might not know which name that is, which stock that is, but in aggregate, a fundamental index, when it rebalances, because you do need to rebalance a fundamental index more frequently than a capitalization index, because again, you're using different criteria other than size. So as part of that rebalancing, you're selling the bigger names, which as a group can be overvalued, and buying the names that have smaller weights, which as a group can be undervalued. Again, you don't know which one. That's why we're looking at broad baskets of securities. But this was a strategy developed by Rob Arnott of Research Affiliates and others. And it's very intriguing. And what I like about it, it doesn't lead to typically to these huge sector weights. Because they're looking at the entire universe and deciding what the weight should be based on this fundamental data. They're not taking the entire universe and dividing it into value and growth. They're just taking that entire universe of stocks and coming up with a different weighting scheme other than size. But at the end of the day, it leads to a value bias, which in theory should outperform growth indices and growth stocks. Except we've gone through a period of 12 and a half years of value underperforming, and so fundamental indexing has had a tough time, too. 
But just to give you an idea, the Schwab Fundamental U.S. Broad Market ETF, this is a fundamentally weighted index. It has 16% in information technology and 13.5% in financials. Now, again, the Russell 1000 value has 6% in technology and 24% in financials. The Russell 1000 growth has 38% technology and 3% financials. So by not dividing the universe of stocks into growth versus value, but instead just reweighting them using a fundamental scheme, you don't get these huge overweights. But not always. MSCI has some fundamentally weighted indices that still tend to skew toward financials. So again, you have to look at how these things are constructed. But right now, in terms of my portfolio, it's primarily fundamentally weighted indices. That's how I'm getting a value tilt. Now, I've not had them for 12 and a half years. It still has been primarily broad-based, but this is a way to hopefully participate in the rebound in value. Now, the other way to participate in value, particularly when you have these managers that have just underperformed significantly, was how I did it back in 2000. I had a client, a university client based in Texas, and they wanted a new value manager. I wanted to, or recommended to them, a manager that had severely underperformed. It's Pacific Financial Research. They were based in Beverly Hills, California. They ran the Clipper Fund. Portfolio managers were James Gibson, Michael Sandler, and Bruce Vico. We went out to Beverly Hills. We met with them. Very concentrated portfolio. About 30 names or less. Deep value. They worked hard. They did the fundamental research and they constructed a portfolio and they had significantly underperformed the market. But to the credit of this university, they made an allocation and the manager did outstanding because they had a very deep value portfolio and value started outperforming. Now, most of my clients, I couldn't do that. Typically, it was an investment committee that was making that decision. Committees just inherently had a very difficult time allocating to a manager that had underperformed. But the staff, a couple people, they were able to do it. Are there managers today that are suffering like that? There are. An example is Southeastern Asset Management. They'd been around since 1975. They run the Longleaf Partners Fund and other Longleaf Funds. That Longleaf Partners Fund has typically been closed to new investors. It just reopened January 30th of 2019. Their performance over the past five years is negative 0.21% annualized. They've lagged the Russell 1000 value index, the actual value index, they've lagged by 8%. They've lagged the S&P 500 by 11%. Very concentrated, only 17 stocks. Here's what Kevin McDevitt of Morningstar wrote about the fund. Quote, despite the fund's poor results the past five years, the managers believe the portfolio's current holdings offer one of their lowest price to estimated fair value ratio in years. Indeed, they reopened the fund to new investors on January 30th, 2019, to take advantage of the opportunity. To be sure, they say that this decision was based on the portfolio's attractive valuations, not the fact that investors withdrew 
an estimated $6.4 billion from the fund over the past five years. Currently, the fund has $1.9 billion, 17 holdings. They actually have a podcast that they launched last year. And I pulled up an interview that was titled, Is Value Dead? Among those that were on that interview were Mason Hawkins, who's the CEO and chairman, and Staley Cates, who's the vice chairman. Hawkins in the interview went through periods when kind of these cycles. And one example was the Nifty 50. This occurred in the late 60s when the biggest big cap names got very pricey and were leading the market. And Kate says, to me, today seems a lot like a combination of Nifty 50 days and Internet bubble days, where the index basically means you're going to own the same major names. And you're going to do that and not get fired, whether you're an indexer or a shadow indexer. But there's also this belief in a few companies that they can do no wrong. And it doesn't matter if they make any money. In that sense, it's like .com. So it's kind of a combo of the two. And that's what you're seeing. The market, the consensus is these technology names, which make up 30%, 38% of the growth index, can do no wrong. That they're going to continue to dominate. Kate continues, we have no idea when this ends or how it stops, just as we never had with any of the cycles. But it's usually an event people don't see coming. Or it's a rolling over of the economic cycle, which these days the economics are so good that no one worries about that. But that's usually probably when you should worry about it. And this was recorded last November. He continues, so the chasing of the same names, the incredible depth of data you can get these days as a researcher, and the quant power, which we will never match. All of that is very much focused on the short term. We would argue that makes short-term moves even more efficient and therefore difficult to predict. He's positioning what's their strategic advantage. He's acknowledging the quantitative algorithms out there, the availability of data. Markets are efficient in that they can quickly adjust to changes in company fundamentals. But, he continues... All that extra focus on the short term is what leaves long-term situations cheap because a lot of this technology cannot help with a three-year outlook, even if it can help next quarter's outlook. And that becomes our biggest things. If our clients can give us three years and we have three years to wait, which most of the industry doesn't have, either the manager isn't wired that way or the client doesn't give them that much time. That becomes our biggest competitive advantage or one of them. I saw that as an institutional investment advisor. Your typical investment committee, their patience for an underperforming manager is about three to three and a half years. Then they're ready to get a new manager in there because it's so hard to figure out. Are they underperforming because they're not skilled or because their style is out of favor? So this idea that the markets are much more efficient in the short term because of all the quantitative trading, the ease, the way you get data. But it's very difficult to do. Mason Hawkins describes it as time horizon arbitrage. That analysts can see the near-term problems, and they worry about them, and the market worries about them, but many of them would be resolved in three to five years if investors were patient enough to hold on. 
This firm looks at strong business, great people, and discounted price. And Mason Hawkins says that is extremely difficult to do. The fine companies that have the strong business, they have the great people and the discounted price. And he says that's why they have a concentrated portfolio. Only 17 names. I'm attracted to that. I, I like to invest when a manager is down. I'm going to seriously consider making you know, an allocation to this fund because it's open and you can get in, but you have to be patient. And maybe Hawkins says they're calling them dinosaurs now of his firm and of Hawkins and Kate's because they've been around so long. Maybe they've lost their touch or maybe value will come back. Most of my value allocation is through fundamental indexing, through ETFs. I don't believe value is dead. I believe it's difficult to predict when it will turn, but I believe human nature hasn't changed. That investors get overly exuberant, that they anticipate the future is going to be so much better for these growth companies. And the companies that are struggling and have problems, they believe that things will never get better. And if you own a broad enough basket of these stocks, you don't have to predict which stock is going to surprise to the upside. Longleaf is, I mean, that, if you have 17 holdings, that's you're predicting and believing that these stocks will eventually outperform. But you can still be a passive investor and benefit from a value utility, either using a traditional value index, recognizing it has a big overweight in financials, or using a fundamentally weighted index, and the construction itself leads to a value bias. I don't think value is dead, and which is why I'm comfortable allocating to value, and even in, on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, the model portfolios, they have a value tilt using fundamentally weighted ETFs as well as some value factor ETFs. That is episode 261. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. I'll email those links to you each week. I'll email you an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy, some of the best writing I do each week, as well as other valuable insights and content. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.